Welcome back to the Comic Book Historians Podcast. I'm Alex Grant with my co-host Jim Thompson. Today we're going to discuss Harvey Comics. First, a quick background. Now, Worth Carnahan published Champion Comics and Joe Simon's friend Al Harvey acquired Speed and Champion Comics, which was a starting off point for Harvey Comics. After his two brothers, Robert and Leon Harvey joined, they found success licensing characters for comics starting with the Green Hornet, then Blondie, Dick Tracy, then in the 1950s got another licensing contract with Famous Studios under Paramount with Casper the Friendly Ghost, and they developed original characters like Richie Rich. In 58, Harvey purchased Famous Studio cartoon characters like Casper and got more characters like Hot Stuff, printing comics of these characters. After a few decades, Harvey seized publication in 1982 and was sold to Jeffrey Montgomery's HMH Communications in 1989. So today we're glad to have Johnny Harvey, a true Harvey in the legacy of Harvey's, who will be at Wizard World Comic Con New Orleans, January 3rd to 5th, doing a panel on Harvey Comics, talking about his documentary, Ghost Empire. Check out their programming schedule online to find the day and time at wizardworld.com. Johnny, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Hi, Johnny. Harvey is not always on everybody's mind. And Alex, let me ask you a question first. Mm -hmm. Casper was dead by the time you were into reading comics. I mean, he was he was dead and gone. I was reading comics in uh, 86 is when I started reading. I was watching reruns of Casper cartoons, not really reading Casper comics. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and Richie Rich, none of those had a big imprint on you as a kid, right? Well, Richie Rich did as a cartoon, but not as a comic book. I was watching the cartoons, but I was not in anywhere near a Richie Rich or Casper comic book. That's true. So for my generation, this was the comics. I mean, I mm -hmm. bought five different sad sack titles per month. I was buying Richie Rich zillions and billions and billions, all, all of the different titles, Casper, all of that. There was a time somewhere in between Archie and then Marvel and DC where that was my kids' comics. And I think there's a listener base out there that that's where they're coming to when they hear, oh, we're talking about Harvey. There's an older generation yeah. that's oh, yeah. going to be more interested in the collector base that's going to be interested in Boys Ranch and Stuntman. God, especially Stuntman, because those two issues are just glorious and the stories mm -hmm. in there. Before we get into your project, which is fascinating, you know what you've learned about the history of Harvey Comics from beginning to the end, basically. Something I'm curious about is what's your knowledge of how Al Harvey acquired Beat and Champion Comics through Worth Carnahan Publishing? Because he didn't have money to buy it, right? right? So how did he acquire that? What exactly happened there? So to back up a minute, Al Harvey, who's my grand uncle, he mm -hmm. was the mover, the shaker, the visionary of the company. He was working at Fox Comics, which you guys probably know very well as yeah. the place where Joe Simon really you know, started developing his skills. I was told that he actually was the one that set up Simon and Kirby as yeah, he partners. Did. And he met Kirby at Fox. Yes. They actually met there. And Fox himself was the first king of comics. He was self-proclaimed. Self-proclaimed, yes, the, the king of comics. The three of them, Jack Kirby, Joe Simon, and Al, developed a very, very strong friendship, especially Joe and, and Al. Alfred, you know, was working at Fox and then decided, you know, he wanted to start his own publishing house because he realized that that was where the money was. It wasn't in creating the comics. It wasn't in, in, in kind of being in the bullpen. It was actually owning or at least owning the operation of a comic book company. Right. And so he actually 
with the help of Joe Simon, even though Joe Simon was working for other publishers at the time, Joe Simon would secretly help Al under pseudonames to get their comics off the ground. But he didn't really have any money. I mean, he was a son of Jewish Russian immigrants. He didn't have much to his name at all. But he was working with a guy named Irving Mayheimer. And Irving Mayheimer gave him like $200, which seems like nothing today, but gave him $200 to buy, I believe it was Speed and Champ. Mm -hmm. And he was able to do some of those characters from that. And then he also owned, I think, the Green Hornet. So he was like, can you guys also do the Green Hornet comics? So I think they started somewhere around like Green Hornet number six or number seven or something like that. Like Holyoke maybe I think had the title or was licensed. Yes, that's right. And, and that was the first licensed property, right? I think so. In, in or at least the first yeah. property. It is. Yeah. It's their first license. Yeah. 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 From what I understand. I mean, a lot of the stuff, like, it's funny because I'm learning stuff every day, but I think that was their first licensed property. And then they started two lines called Pocket and Spitfire. Pocket was like literally a pocket-sized comic book. That was kind of an innovative thing that Al thought of. And he literally kind of like cut the thing in half. You know, it was just an easier way for somebody to kind of digest a comic book and it would literally fit in their pocket. And later, like in the digest, that works out great. But back then, the newsstands, it would fall behind a bigger comic and not be seen. That was the problem with that. Well, yeah, that was one problem. And then they also kept getting stolen. They were really Mm -hmm. easy to steal, I heard. So yeah, it was like a really brilliant idea that I guess was a little too soon or like wasn't really well thought out. So yeah, so they were doing those lines, but then they started, like they were doing Green Hornet, started licensing really, really famous characters from the syndicated strips. Alfred, meanwhile, 1941, America gets drawn into World War II. Like a lot of comic book publishers, a lot of the big artists and writers and and big name syndicated strip people went to the Pentagon to create war pamphlet material, comic book material for the war effort, whether that's Mm -hmm. propaganda or just informational manuals and pamphlets that teach, you know, somebody how to like change out their rifle or clean like the latrines or things that considering a lot of people in the war who were enlisted couldn't speak English or read English. They were illiterate immigrants of other countries or what have you. It was a way for them to actually learn these things through the use of pictures, which was, that's really what comic books are about. And so Al met all these people there, you know, George Baker, who was some sad sack and a lot of different artists at his time at the Pentagon. While he was literally at the Pentagon, Harvey Comics was still going. And so he actually asked my grandfather, Leon, who had studied art at Pratt to kind of steer the ship in his stead. Mm -hmm. And so Leon was pretty much the acting president while Alfred was there and Alfred was just in DC. So he'd be able to come back every now and then to just check on the business and do things. And I don't think that Leon was doing anything crazy during that time. I think he was just kind of status quo, like, let's just Mm -hmm. get these books out where, you know, Al was actually developing all these amazing relationships, especially with people at the Pentagon. Because after the war ended, everybody came back, and then there was a flood of all these new comic publishers that just hit the market. But right. Al had connection to paper because the, the U.S. government was controlling a lot of resources in America at the time, one of which was paper. Mm-hmm. And so Al had these connections to paper, and Joe Simon and Jack Kirby, who were you know working for other people, I think they were working for Timely at the time, which we now know was Marvel. They were asking, oh, like, when are you going to get paper? When are you going to get paper? We want to publish these books and Timely doesn't want to do it. And all of a sudden he got access to paper and they, I think they put out stuff like Boy's Ranch and Boy Explorer and a bunch of other books that people look back on. And even Joe had mentioned it in his biography that he felt like Boy Explorer and Boy's Ranch were the best work that they had ever done. But 
Right. I just don't think they really hit. I don't, I'm not sure that the market was flooded with all these different Western books and all these different adventure books. And it just was something that I guess didn't take off in the way that they hoped. But in hindsight, oh, yourself and a lot of other historians would consider that some of like some of Joe Simon gold right there. I love Boys Ranch. I think it's like a preclude to even X-Men and stuff. I think Kirby brought some of that group dynamic that he did with Joe Simon over to the X-Men books. That's 1950. So now you're in the time frame of late 40s, kind of 1950. Okay. We got to be fair that Simon and Kirby were doing Newsboy Legion and yep. Boy Commandos and all those yes. before he did Boys Ranch. Yes, that's right. Yes, and that, that was exactly. before exactly. his draft. Yeah, the Commandos was really successful. I don't know which of like the four books that they were printing that the Commandos was in. They were doing Black Cat, of course. I think Joe Simon actually did some of the cover art. Lee Elias was the main cover art guy. But during the war, it was interesting because I recently learned that if you talk to Trina Robbins, who's a really big, she calls herself a herstorian of women in comics. She has a great book called Babes in Arms, and it talks about all these women. Right. Of course, all these men went to the Pentagon to create all that material for the war effort. So a lot of women in all these industry jobs in America kind of stepped up and taking the men's jobs and, and doing whatever it was. There was a handful of women that actually were in comic books at the time. And two of the four women she features in her book actually worked for Harvey, Jill Elgin and Barbara Hall. And both of them were working on Black Cat. And it's really interesting because Trina would argue that women actually draw women better than men draw women <laughs> for whatever reason. And if you look at some of that Black Cat artwork, you can clearly kind of tell it was drawn by a woman, even though some of the covers, I think, were still by Lee. And I think Joe Simon definitely did at least one. So, yeah, I mean, it was kind of interesting. They were really like working with some really talented artists at the time. And, and then, then when you get to the horror stuff, they yeah. had the best stable of artists, except for EC, probably. They were producing the quality stuff alternative to EC Comics during right. that period, but much, much more graphic and darker. Can you talk about that a little bit? I guess Sid Jacobson, who was an editor for Harvey for a while and was kind of yes. like, you know, became kind of like the guy. He yeah. started, I believe, doing the horror and thriller books and he loved it. He was like obsessed with it. He was like, yeah. it was gory and it was, you know, violent. He didn't really like, I mean, they, they were doing like all those war books as well, but the horror he just loved. And he really tried to emulate the EC line because EC at the time was the premier horror comic line. Yeah. And so they really like they saw EC as the standard and they tried to emulate that. And I think if you look at some of the stuff, it really is up there with some of like the top quality of that time. One thing I would say, though, is that EC was almost through Al Fieldstein was almost unnecessarily gory, cutting right. off women's heads and things. Whereas the Harvey stuff, they didn't get that trashy about it. I think they were kind of a classy horror, if I were to make a comparison like that. Yeah, I think so. And like even Black Cat, there was Black Cat mystery. And I think there was some really gory stuff in there, but they did it in a very classy way that still kind yeah. of felt like it was a Black Cat story. Of course, this was all pre-comic code. The laws of comics were very different in the 40s. So yeah, they were doing... A lot of that, but at the same time, they were licensing really popular syndicated strips like Joe Palooka, and they were doing like Flash Gordon, which is kind of weird to say that Harvey right. was doing Flash Gordon. Like, what? Okay, that's kind of an interesting one. They were, I mean, they were doing Dick Tracy, they were doing Carrie Drake, they even did like a Babe Ruth comic. They were licensing very popular names mm -hmm. and having a lot of success with it. Dagwood, uh, Blondie and Dagwood, Terry right. and the Pirates. And it was the main artists and writers of the strips. Al was the kind of guy that made crazy deals with people and bring them in. And sometimes it split profits straight down the middle 
he was a fair guy then, you would say, when it comes to those business deals. I think so. I mean, I think he worked at Fox Comics and, and Fox, you know, Victor Fox was a very notorious businessman. He was somebody that treated people like scum. I think Al saw that and realized I could treat people a little bit better. It'll be mutually beneficial for everybody. They'll get money and we'll get more popular and be able to build our brand name. And I think he was right because 10 years later, they were able to start licensing deals with Paramount and their famous studios. And they started doing Little Audrey and they started doing Casper, Baby Huey, Herman, and Catnip. And then by the time they had been doing those characters just through licensing for a handful of years, opportunity sprung and they were able to buy those characters. And then Harvey just exploded on the map with the television shows. So licensing was like their golden goose, pretty much. I think so. I think, you know, his relationship with a lot of these publishers, whether it was King Features or the actual artists themselves, if they had negotiated good deals. Yeah, I think that they were really drawn to Harvey to an extent. I want to ask you a question coming off of the horror stuff a little bit. The comics code, where was Harvey in relation to that? Did they embrace it as a way to better compete against things like EC, like other companies did? Or were they one of the ones that were like resistant to that kind of control and and censorship? As the hearings were happening with Wortham, I think that Harvey was very much like, what's the path towards least resistance? They had a very eclectic catalog of things, right? I mean, they were doing Sad Sack, which interestingly enough, a senator from Indiana called Sad Sack socialist propaganda. The attack on comic books was not simply because the comic books were gory and making children deviant by, you know, reading their books before they even understood what the word deviant meant. It was more broad than that. It was like any ideology that people didn't agree with, they would blame these comic books. And so I think that Harvey, you know, I like to call these guys the comic book godfathers, you know, Dell didn't want anything to do with it because they were doing the Disney stuff. Right. Right. And Archie, Marvel, DC, and Harvey, they came together as a group and they were like, look, how can we survive together? Mm -hmm. And fortunately, Harvey was licensing those Paramount characters that we know of Harvey today, of Casper and Little Audrey. And I think that they realized that those characters were very popular and they could double down on those characters. I have a couple other titles that made sense for them. Which is good to not have all your eggs in one basket. That's a lesson there. So the comics code really was partly responsible for the directions that Harvey went into in order to survive. Yeah, I I mean, mean, my grandfather was appointed the treasurer of the Comics Magazine Association. You know, I mean, they were right there. Oh, they were in it then, yeah. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't say that they were Silberkleit. He's an Archie guy, yeah. Yeah, I think he was the head of the thing. This was a close community of people. They all wanted to succeed together, and I think that they realized that they could all carve out their niche. Harvey was for the youngest of kids by the time that they had carved this niche out. They were attracting kids from, at the time, they're learning to read at age four through maybe early middle school, you know, when you're 10 or 11 years old, if you were still reading some of the Richie Rich stuff. Mm -hmm. And then you would graduate to something a little bit more mature. If you were a girl, typically you would graduate to the Archie books. If you were a guy, typically you'd go to the Marvel DC stuff. And as I understand, the the DC stuff was more mature than the Marvel stuff at one point, and the Marvel stuff was a little bit more mature than the DC stuff at one point. And so I think it just depended on what you gravitated towards as a kid. As a reader, Jim, for the audience members that may not know, we actually interviewed you for the documentary to give a little historical context about where Harvey fit. And you had kind of mentioned that the Tweety Bird, you were obsessed with the cartoons. But when it came to comics as a kid, you were obsessed with Harvey Comics. And I think there were a lot of people your age that really, for some reason, fell in love with the fantasy world that they created. Well, I mean, one aspect of it was during the Comics Code era, 
this was the only place you could get that kind of supernatural mythos. Yes, it, it was silly in a lot of ways, but there were horrific ghosts, the three uncles of Casper's the okay. ghostly trio and Wendy the Good Witch. You didn't have a lot of witches, you know, until later when DC and with Orlando and stuff with House of Mystery. But at this point, you had hot stuff, which is a demon from hell. <laughs> you know, those things weren't available. You know, I mean, yes, you didn't have Zombie Boy and you didn't have a little vampire. But the rest of it, the horror things, you had most of those. And I was really, and Stumbo, the giant, there were so many, and the psychotic. I mean, if there was ever a serial killer in comics, it was probably Little Dot. Because she's, <laughs> she's insane. So for that's, me, it was that's fascinating. The first time I've heard that, and I love it. Um, but that's interesting that hot stuff would slip past the comics code. But I guess it was such under a kid friendly veneer, it just got through. I guess that was it. Yeah, and I think that Hot Stuff is the kind of character that, like Spooky, kind of felt like he needed to, with his stick, you know, poke and prod people and cause a little trouble. And I think that he would learn lessons through the means of of starting problems. Yeah, Yeah. that was one of those code requirements. If something happened, there had to be some consequence or lesson out of it. I mean, like, that was how it appeared on the surface. But the Hell's Angels and motorcycle gangs and things were adapting hot stuff as an emblem on leather jackets and on motorcycles and things. Still a very popular So it was subversive in its own way. Okay, we're in the 50s to the 60s. Harvey's hit on television, huge. Do you know anything about Harvey's relationship with Famous Studios and getting the Casper license? Tell us about that, because I'm really curious. And we're going to really lay this out really well in the doc. I'm really excited for this, because this was some of the most confusing history that I've ever how confusing the story was. This was one of the most confusing things. Essentially, there were really strong antitrust laws in this country. Believe it or not, there were not three companies that owned the entire media situation in America like it is today. In the 50s, Paramount produced and distributed, they had vertical integration pretty much with all of their stuff, with their cartoons. They were able to put it in their own movie theaters. That was a huge no-no. And there were all these studios that were kind of doing the same practice, but Paramount in particular was being singled out. And Harvey had been licensing their comic books. Now, TV was just really getting onto the scene in the late 40s and the 50s in a, in a real big way. Mm, and it really right. challenged the movie industry as a whole. Mm. And Paramount wanted these characters on television in some way because, you know, they had a little imprint. And they thought, okay, Harvey's been doing our books. They've started to build themselves a good brand name. What if we sold Harvey the characters and then Harvey put it on TV? And Harvey kind of jumped at this because this was a way more lucrative. They would be able to own the characters and to merchandising themselves. Right. But Paramount still wanted to be involved. So the deal pretty much it was a wink, wink kind of deal, as I understand, where Paramount went to Harvey and said, OK, we'll sell these to you for such and such amount, which Harvey didn't have. Then they said, but you're going to hire us to do the animation. You'll work hand in hand with the animators at Paramount under nice. the Harvey name. So we'll actually be getting the work to put these characters out, but you'll get to own and merchandise and be the lead storytellers and what have you. And it was an easy deal for the Harveys. And then they were able to put the characters on TV. And then it's really after that moment when the Harveys bought Casper, that Casper took off because they changed Casper from a sad ghost that was in a cemetery, just moping around looking for a friend to a ghost that lived in a haunted house with all these people. They created Spooky and Wendy and the ghostly trio. And they created an entire fantasy world 
where Casper's goal was to be a superhero and to solve right. people's problems and make mm-hmm. a friend along the way, teach lessons along the way. And so Harvey really revolutionized Casper. I mean, the Casper that everybody knows today, that is the Harvey Casper. That's um, the Harvey Casper, right. Paramount, Oriolo, blanking on the other co-creator of Casper. Like, yeah, they set the blueprint, but Harvey took it and ran with it. And mm-hmm. of course, had all the success starting with Maddie's Fun Day Funny, which was a primetime weekend show on ABC, sponsored by Maddie Mattel, Mattel Toys. It was huge. That was when Harvey as a company, as a business, that's when they took off. They were making Mm -hmm. an absurd amount of money. And I think the family thought it was going to last for forever. And then, of course, the industry as a whole changed a lot in the coming decades. And we can kind of get into that. So I think that in the 60s, of course, the Marvel Revolution was starting to happen, right? And... That was when these superhero characters that became somewhat corny after the war, because no one really wanted to read comic books about Hitler getting punched by Captain America after he was dead, for some reason became big again in the 60s. Because of science fiction, I think. Yeah, that's probably why. I think there was a lot of different factors, just a general reinterest in that. And so Harvey tried actually to put out some superheroes while they were doing those kid lines. Spy Man, he did with Jim Steranko in the mid-60s. So they were doing like Jack Q. Frost, Jigsaw, B-Man. Yeah. B-Man would be an example. Mm-hmm. They were trying a bunch of different comics. I don't know if they really took off. Not really, as, yeah. Not, yeah, not really. I mean, you know, even in the 50s, they were trying weird stuff. They got into 3D comics. I heard a great story where they thought 3D comics was going to like totally upend the industry and it was going to be only 3D comics. Either Alfred or Leon essentially made a deal with the distributor of the 3D lenses, like the actual glasses. Right, right, right. Actually buy up all of them. So they would have a monopoly on the 3D glasses. Right. Joe Simon came out with Captain 3D and Adventures in 3D. 3D. I I have that comic. That's great. Yeah. It was a huge success. So one of the two of them was like a huge success at first, the first couple issues. And they were like, we got to get all of them. So they bought all the glasses and they thought they were going to monopolize the market. Right as the third one came out or something like that, the market completely crashed. Right. And then they were just stuck with like hundreds of thousands of these glasses in their warehouse. Yeah. Where when they pillaged the warehouse in the 80s, they just found the reams and reams of these glasses. Harvey definitely had their successes, but they definitely tried some things that didn't work out. <laughs> the superhero line that they did from 65 to 67, that's just to give the audience some background. That's called the Harvey Thriller line. Joe Simon founded that for Harvey. And there's different people, Jack Kirby, Bob Powell, Wally Wood, Otto Bender and the earliest Jim Steranko work. So it was actually, it wasn't because of lack of talent. It didn't do well. It had a lot of talent, but it just didn't catch on like the Marvel characters were. Yeah, for whatever reason, it just didn't. I think that Harvey, of course, had branded itself as the kid comic line. Obviously, I wasn't alive for that time, but maybe people thought, okay, Harvey Comics is doing this thriller thing. Like, it kind of looks like a Marvel comic. Why don't we just pick up a Marvel comic? Well, it was being done by a lot of the people, of course, you know, Marvel and and some people at DC. And virtually every other company too, Johnny. And and that's that's the one thing I would say is none of them succeeded. I mean, Archie tried it. The mighty superhero group, yeah. Tower tried it, and it was Mm -hmm. a temporary situation. Like, there was every company has Charlton had a little bit more longevity because of Steve Ditko's genius, I think. But ultimately, none of them lasted besides DC and Marvel. I also think there's a little bit of impatience with a comic book, right? You know, sometimes you never know how successful a comic book is until... Yeah, you, you let know, it run that for a seven, while. Yeah, seven issues down the road. And I think that if you're going to try something new like that, you don't really have the patience because 
you're committing to this as opposed to another baby right. Huey book or another right. you know, exactly. Richie Rich book, which of course the Harveys then started creating all these, you know, Richie Rich comics exactly. after after Richie Rich kind of took off. And Richie Rich, just to clarify, is an original character created by Al Harvey and Warren Kramer. In 1953, that was an original Harvey creation, and that took off big time. Yeah, Richie Rich was interesting because they created Little Dot as well in 1953, I believe, and he was like the backup issue. Right, exactly. Little Dot, he wasn't like supposed to be a big feature character. Right. But I guess they started realizing that he was actually becoming really popular. They gave him his first title, I think, in 1960. So it was after they bought all those characters, but they still kind of, you know, Richie, if you look at Richie, he looks just like Casper. You know, I think there's a misnomer that out there, Casper, Casper is, is dead, Richie Rich, Richie Rich. Yeah. yeah, which is just yeah. not true. They just, Harvey had a style and it was Warren Kremer, who's an amazing artist who really didn't get credit he really deserved on the books. The Harveys, like other publishers, really didn't credit artists in the comic books, which became a, a problem down the line. Richie had a very popular outset and then they kept riding on Richie and, and eventually by the early 70s, they came out with 32 different Richie Rich titles, mm. meaning like Richie Rich, you know, there's Richie Rich, there's Richie Rich Millions, there was Richie Rich Billions, there was Richie Rich Dollars and Cents, there was Richie Rich <laughs> and His Girlfriends. They came, out with like 30, they came out with like 32 different titles within a two-month period of time in the well, early well, 70s, which is just kind of insane. And Jim actually noted that in the 80s, he became Ozymandias, I think, from Watchmen. Is that I, right? I have, I have pointed that out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I have a question. Who was it at Harvey that Richie Rich, I get, but there was a tendency in terms of the male characters to pick any names that began and end with the same, the first name and the last name. <laughs> Richie Rich was fine, but what was it? Jackie Jokers. Jackie Billy Joker. Bellhops, Jackie Billy Jokers. Bellhops. Yeah, Those I, are crazy. No, I have no idea. Little Lada. What can I don't read a book about bellhops? You know, Billy Bellhops. Yeah, I, idea. <laughs> it's well, a blue collar comedy, I figure. A blue collar comedy. Sid Jacobson in particular definitely did not like Billy Bellhops and thought it wasn't a very good idea. I was told that one of the Harvey, one of the Alfred Harvey's children came up with the idea and they thought it was a good idea and they ran with it. I don't know. I don't know why they had the alliteration for all the characters. And then, of course, down the lines, they came up with Royal Roy for Star, which was right. essentially the Harvey imprint at Marvel, which we're getting a little down the road. We're but gonna, That's the that's 80s. We're, we're going to get there. Jim, I don't have a good answer for you. I have, I have no idea. But I think that they, for some reason, they thought it was spiffy. And maybe back in the day, in the, you know, in the 60s or 70s, 50s even, like the catchy little jingle was a way for somebody just to kind of latch on to something. And maybe they saw Richie Rich was such a good title and worked for them that maybe they were going to throw out some other names and see what stuck. Jackie Jokers does grow up to be the comedian in The Watchmen. Right, so there's that's a, right. There, there's that's a symmetry true. there. There but, is a symmetry, yes. But that being said, they had all that alliteration going on all through comics. So let's go to the 70s and then in the beginning of the 80s then. So tell us you were talking about the 70s there, Johnny. Tell us more about some happenstance in the 70s that leads us into the 80s and their decline. I think the peak for Harvey was in 1974. Casper was named the control module of Apollo 16. Mm -hmm. So they did a huge... Right. I mean, they were sponsors of all these different groups. Like Casper was the spokesperson for the Dentist Association of America, for UNICEF, for Boy Scouts... Richie was National Baseball League. To be the guy for the Apollo mission was a really big deal for the company. And they did all mm -hmm. this cross-merchandising and, and 
comic book lines based on the trip to the moon. It was huge that Casper literally landed on the moon. But months later, one of the Harvey brothers, Robert Harvey, Robert was in charge of the business side. And all three brothers had a third of the stake of the company. It was a family business. Alfred was the visionary, the entrepreneur. He was the president of the company. My grandfather, Leon, he was the editor-in-chief. He was the guy that you know, every comic book had to go through him. He signed off on every comic book before it went to the market. And Robert was the accounting, the money guy. When Robert died suddenly of a heart attack, the inner workings at the company, everything changed. So and what year was that when that happened? 74. 74, okay. And, and I heard, Johnny, in an interview, you compared this to HBO's Succession, which I, I thought was, was pretty funny. Was it really, did it become a family in turmoil at that point? And that was where the infighting was coming from? Our new producer, Patrick Meany, we're thrilled to have brought on. He's done, you know, the Image Revolution documentary about Image Comics. He's, mm-hmm. He made, she makes comics. He's done Chris Claremont's mm-hmm. documentaries. He's done Neil Gaiman's. Cool. He did that he, with he, Mike Phillips then, right? I believe so, yes. He's really been around the comic book doc scene. When we were starting to work together in the outset, instantly we went to Succession for his comp. And then I watched Succession and I saw what he meant. It was a family business. That was a huge media. I call it an empire. I mean, they were really successful merchandising. They were on television. They were in publishing. Casper was huge. Casper was one of the most popular characters in the world. And Richie Rich was one of the most successful comic book lines for children of all time. In a sense of succession, you know, the whole plot of succession is what happens when the visionary, the leader of a company, his leadership comes into question because of his health or because of ego and dynamics that happen within the family itself. And Robert dying was something that really frayed the family because one, there were three brothers and now there was two brothers and the representation of the third brother. And they felt like, you know, we got to get our fair share of this. And they were too busy trying to work that out. There was a little bit of infighting and it wasn't a very pretty scene that they weren't really able to look into the market. What was happening in the 70s, as you guys well know about what was happening in comic books and the publishing industry as a whole in the 70s and how that was changing dramatically. They didn't have the people in charge that were able to really look at the industry and make those changes. And so that really set them back to when they figured out a restructuring of the business. It may have been a little too, you know, too little too late. So officially they stopped publishing in, in, they, they were in 1982, which Alex had mentioned earlier. And it was originally like, oh, we'll be right back. We're going through like a rebranding or something like that. And then it took about three years and they kind of restructured the business. Robert Harvey died. There was an agreement to put my grandfather, Leon, in as president of the company. And I don't think Alfred was very thrilled about that. They were running. It was fine. Everything was going okay, but they weren't really making any big deals. There was some movie deals that were flubbed. Like things just really weren't. So it was because of conflict. Between Al and Leon, right? Their relationship started to fray after Leon was appointed president. Yeah. And then in the 80s, they stopped publishing in 82 and they restructured the business again so that the children of the original three brothers would take the mantle. So Alfred's firstborn son, Alan Harvey, was co-presidents with one of Robert's sons, uh, Stephen. And my father was appointed, I guess, vice president of the company. I don't think he was intensely involved. I think he was more of a board member to an extent. And they tried to essentially bring Harvey back by, you know, I think they came back in 86 or 85. They were printing Digest and some reprints in 1986. In 86, yeah. They had a little success. The company was in tremendous debt at that point. They really just didn't have their pulse on the market. 
let's go through the 80s because this is basically when it all kind of breaks apart in splinters. And so 1982, we'll talk about the Marvel thing because executive editor Tom DeFalco was coordinating with Harvey editor Sid Jacobson to continue publishing Harvey Comics. And then it's said that Al and Leon disagreed on something in the deal and the whole thing fell apart. What happened? Yeah, so we're definitely getting into this in the doc because it's an interesting story of like the what if the Harvey properties were in the Marvel universe. Essentially, Tom DeFalco, who we've interviewed for the doc, was very concerned when Harvey stopped publishing that the youngest readers would stop getting their intro to comics. Mm -hmm. And then that would throw the market off in a way that they weren't prepared for because he likes to call it a stepladder. He was concerned for the industry. These four publishers, they lived in harmony together. The Marvel DC, like maybe they were considered competitors, but Harvey never considered any of those publishers competitors. They were just industry partners and they carved out their niche. And of course, Joe would go in and out. You know, Joe Simon would go in and out of Harvey for his own personal reasons because Alfred would always have work for him. Marvel was concerned that the youngest readers were going to not get their intro to comic books, which would really screw the market up. Tom went to his powers that be at Marvel and was like, hey, can we buy Harvey? Like, they're not publishing. Like, maybe we can get a deal with them. And Sid loved that idea because Sid had all these people that needed work. And there was a deal kind of in place with Marvel. I'm not sure that the deal was really what the Harvey properties were worth, but it was a way just to get these characters off their hands. It was pretty much a done deal. It was going to happen. The story we've been told is that Sid and Tom, they all went to the Harvey offices to just show everybody around. This is where we're taking over. This is the office. Sid's obviously been there. He's going to be leading the charge. We're going to start work Monday morning or something like that. Sid said, they'll come down to the Marvel offices, take everybody over there. They got there in the morning and they're like, hey, so we got a little bit of a hiccup. Can you guys just wait around? We're just working out some final things. And they were sitting around all day, kind of just waiting, waiting, waiting. And then all of a sudden they said, hey, uh, the deal didn't go through. We're not going to do the Harvey stuff anymore. And Sid was devastated because he really wanted to continue the Harvey art. I think Alfred really didn't want to part with the company yet. I think that he still really cared for these characters and didn't feel that this was the right deal, that they were getting fair value out of it. And I'm speculating a little bit because I never got to meet my granduncle. From our interviews, I think that's what I've gathered. And Sid may argue there was a little bit of spite involved against Sid. I can't really speak to that from a factual perspective. Mm. But I do know that the two of them had a little bit of conflict. Sounds like Leon and Sid were all for it, but Al wasn't. I don't know if Leon was like 100% gun-ho with it. But at that point in Al and Leon's relationship, it wasn't very strong. It's unclear that my side of the family was really ready to move on from that chapter of their life. They thought it might be a good situation. There were other potential buyers besides Marvel, to be clear. The Hearst Company wanted to buy the company and the Mm. properties. Coca-Cola, I've been told, wanted to buy the company. There were some huge brands that were like, Casper's available, potentially. Casper's out there in the way that it was. How is that possible? How can we get in on this? And Marvel was closest at the time to do that. But the Marvel deal didn't happen. And Tom DeFalco was still like, we just courted all these Harvey people. We need to start a kid's line. Can we still do a kid's line? They're like, yeah, we're still going to go ahead and do a kid's line. There's a problem. Like, we're not allowed to use the Harvey name and we don't want to call them Marvel Comics. I guess at the time, people felt like comic book stores had started to come out. And I guess comic book buyers didn't want to only buy Marvel Comics. I think that they felt like it was like the only option, so they needed something else. And so they created a brand name called Star Comics, which Mm -hmm. was essentially the Harvey operation, all the editors, all the artists, maybe some people from the Marvel group that were in-house. 
and essentially did a spinoff of Harvey Comics for Marvel. They did um, a comic book called Royal Roy and a handful of other characters that you may think like, oh, that's the Harvey style. And, you know, they brought over Warren Kremer, who was kind of the main Harvey artist. But that was the thing, wasn't it? I mean, when they brought him over and then they just start Richie Rich under a different name to some degree, that didn't sit well with Harvey, right? No, I mean, it didn't. I mean, they felt like that was a blatant infringement on their copyright of the character. And so they sued Marvel. So what do you know about that lawsuit? I mean, they sued Marvel and Marvel's like, they'd just done a, an issue or two or something like that. And they were like, this just isn't worth this at all. So they dropped the lawsuit when they said, we'll stop publishing Royal Roy. And it didn't do well anyway. It seized after the six issues and lawsuit was dropped. Royal Roy didn't catch fire like the way Richie Rich did. Sid would argue and Tom would argue that as a whole, Marvel had never had success doing kids comics before. And this was their first actual look into potential success. You know, there were some lines like a top dog, a Wally the Wizard, and some things that I think were doing okay. Back to our conversation, it's hard to judge a comic book character based on just less than 10 issues if it's right. going to catch on. Right. Six you know, isn't what, enough. Like, what right. if they stopped Richie Rich after like Richie Rich number seven? Like, I don't know what those sales numbers were exactly. Obviously, they found a lot of success in Richie in the later years because they let yeah. the character go and there was more brand recognition. And, you know, the Marvel guys, they would argue Royal Roy was a prince and he was learning about solving problems within his own kingdom, dealing with his immense wealth in that way. Right. So they would argue that his character wasn't fueled by money. It wasn't. Whereas Richie, he solved every problem with money. That's funny. So they would argue it was different, but they just didn't feel like sales numbers, I guess, probably weren't like crazy. Yeah. And they just didn't feel like it was worth it. You know, Marvel at the time probably didn't want to go through something like that. So sure. they said, okay, fine, we'll drop the character. And that was that. 1984, Steve Jeppe paid 50000 for Harvey's entire original art archive of Sad Sack, right? Yeah. And that created a little bit of something, didn't it? Because all that original art they could have used to make new comics or even sell later. And then there was some conflict there. That's a part of the company kind of falling apart there, isn't it? Yes. One side of the family wanted to get back into the market and the company was in some debt, of course. And they were losing money off of this warehouse that they were just kind of paying for storage. This warehouse had all the original comics. They had a box of each comic, had like 200 issues of each comic they ever printed. Everybody says it was like kind of like a kid's candy store walking in this place. Wasn't very well organized, as I understand, but had all of Joe Simon's original artwork and all of his original artwork outside of the actual issues of the comics. One day, Steve Jeppe's in his comic book store and in comes one of the Harvey relatives, Warren Harvey. He's like, hey, so I'm one of the Harvey brothers. Steve's like, wait, what? We got like one of the Harveys in my store? And they're like, yeah, we could sell this warehouse of original art. Somebody that's involved in pricing this stuff. Can we get like some quotes on the value of this stuff? He was like, well, I would love to buy it. And they were like, oh, great. And he made two deals with the Harveys to buy the original artwork, which I think he bought for about 50 grand, and then all of the comics. But he was really concerned about the artwork in particular, but it was everything. It wasn't just Sad Sack stuff. Sad Sack was included. So he made two different deals. I think both were 50K each. But if you tally all of the artwork that was there and all the issues, the original issues that were done. And we were talking stuff from the, like 1939. Today, of course, that would be worth a lot more than what he paid for. You know, some individual art pieces of that original work from George Baker and Al Cap and some pretty famous yeah. people and some pretty beautiful stuff that, of course, they didn't get fair market for. But they wanted to start publishing again. So they were trying to get rid of some debt that they, they felt like they had. And that was one way that they could get some money was to sell this warehouse. 
So that's how they were able to get back in the market. You know, in hindsight, a very short-sighted move, considering the company, the new Harvey comics really didn't last very long. In 1986. And then in 1987, Harvey sued Columbia because of the Ghostbusters logo. They thought that there was infringement against Casper's character, Fatso. So is this basically like, look, things aren't going well. Were they grasping at straws or is that legitimate, you think? And the court ruled in Columbia's favor because Harvey didn't renew the copyrights on the early Casper stories. So that's what happened. But what's your impression of motions and events there? That's a really good question. I haven't really been asked that in that way. I think that they genuinely thought that they were infringing on the Fatso copyright. And by they, I mean, I think that Alfred's family, one of his sons mentioned to us that one day they saw the logo for the new Ghostbusters movie. And he, as a kid, was just like, that looks like Fatso. Oh, and really? His that's dad funny. was like, you know, it's a story he told me. And Alfred was like, yeah, I, I think it does too. I mean, I think it was a genuine, this looks just like our character and they seem to be profiting from it. Like we should take a stand, but I don't really think that the entire family as a whole was unified on that front. But at the end of the day, it didn't matter because they didn't renew their copyright. The judge, even the case kind of said, and even if you guys did, only so many ways to draw a ghost and depict yep, a that's ghost. that's the quote. Only uh, so many ways to draw a ghost. I think that they would have lost the case regardless. It is a kind of a larger insight of how disorganized this group was in the 80s. Right. And then in 89, Harvey was sold to HMH Communications and it became this new entity, Harvey Comics Entertainment. They started some comics lines. Marvel was publishing some Casper stuff in the 90s. So that's basically the end of the Harvey family's involvement, right? Yeah. They sold it to an entrepreneur out who was 24 years old, just graduated USC. Pretty amazing story that we're going to detail in the doc about how we got the money. And then he went out and moved the operation to California and finished the Richie Rich movie with Macaulay Culkin that was kind of already had started, then made that Casper movie with Spielberg. And that was a huge hit and was one of the most successful kids' movies of all time. And that was in 95, that Casper 95. was a hit. First and film that actually had a CGI protagonist. That's right, CGI protagonist. And it was cool. a huge milestone for film. And it was massive. I mean, it was the number one movie in America and foreign. In today's dollars, it made $500 million at the box office and another $500 million in today's money in merchandising sales after that. I so, think that movie introduced Casper to my little brother. He was born in 88. Right. He was seven when he saw that. So Right. That was, I think, a lot of people of that, you know, who were born in the 80s, 90s, and even the early 2000s. I think that is the Casper people know. Yeah. Casper is back. Have you seen that? The Geico commercial? He's on the Geico commercial now. <laughs> that day that it came out was, uh, I think, the day after Rosh Hashanah or Rosh Hashanah Day. And I was actually with my grandmother who married to my grandfather. She's still alive. And I'm just having breakfast with her. And I see on the TV, Casper is on. It was a very haunting thing for me. But then that day, it was just a flood of texts and emails being like, have you seen this? He's back. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a cute concept. It's really heartwarming, that, especially Geico understanding how to utilize nostalgia and trustworthy characters. It was very heartwarming that they took a chance on that. And It, it was, was fun. It got the yeah. character right. I enjoyed that. I agree. And then just a little industry background is that Casper and Richie Rich was all done through Universal because they own 20% of this HMH company, and then that became HCE. And then HCE sold Harvey to Classic Media. So now it's changed hands a few times. And now this is basically the disintegration of the, not of the characters, but definitely of the Harvey family's involvement in this. 
So that leads now to your journey in basically, in a way, reclaiming for the public record the history of what happened through your documentary that you're working on called Ghost Empire. Is that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. I started this literally the day of my graduation ceremony from Tulane University. I'd done a lot of journalism in school and I studied business. I was a marketing major and I'd really wanted to make a documentary when I graduated. And I decided maybe this Harvey story is something that's worth exploring. My grandfather died before I was born. I didn't know the Alfred or Robert sides of the family. I just heard stories asking, oh, who's, who was my grandfather? And then my grandmother being like, well, you know, actually we own this comic book company that owned Casper the Friendly Ghost and Rishi Rich and all these other like characters that, you know, you know and love. And I'm like, what are you talking about? That doesn't make any sense to me. And, you know, she was telling me some of these stories and so I thought maybe there's a story here. Now, it doesn't seem like a lot of people know about the Harvey story. They seem to be a really big deal. My graduation day, I told my grandmother, I said, hey, I think I'm going to make a documentary about the family business. Can you just tell me like the stories that you've been telling me for years, just to you know what you remember? And she just went. I followed her leads and I found people that were alive today that were there during that time and talked to them. And I started talking to historians who had done their own research throughout the decades on Harvey and different people that worked there. And then I really didn't realize the scope of how huge this company was and how amazing the story was from just an American history perspective. Right. So I've been for a little over two years, I've been kind of on this journey of discovering what the heck happened to Harvey Comics and why it isn't around in the way that it was. And we've been working on this documentary right now titled Ghost Empire, The Forgotten Story of Harvey Comics. And we think it's going to be a really amazing story about the rise and fall of a really amazing American media empire. Right. And it's also a metaphor for just families in general, because there's that golden age of a family. It's like watching The Godfather 1, 2, and 3 in a way, right? <laughs> it's like you have the family's central key figures. It's almost like a beloved patriarchy in a sense. And then they kind of age, become in a way somewhat lesser versions of themselves, are old, crankier, don't communicate well, not as organized. And then it kind of starts to crumble. And then you have their kids coming in. And then it's even more disorganized. Entropy kind of takes over. And it's going to be, I think, a really interesting documentary because I think that happens in families in general. It's almost like this natural thing that just happens in families. So I think from a family perspective, I think a lot of people will be able to relate to it. Yeah, I think everybody in their own right can identify with a dysfunctional family. Yeah. <laughs> and to be fair, this family at one point was a very functional family. A perfect storm for them of different events that happened that they just weren't able to overcome. And it, it, it's a sad story in a way, but a lot of it's really inspiring. Sons of Russian Jewish immigrants who couldn't find work in reputable jobs carving out their own industry. And that's a lot of what comic book history is. People really just realizing that, hey, I can provide for my family and make it in this country. And they did. It's kind of unbelievable that my grandfather was able to influence millions of kids around the world. Is there a comparable family? I know all right, Goodman, of course, had, you know, Stanley was, Lee was a relative. But is there anything that's as much a family business as Harvey was? I'm trying to think of. Not to my knowledge. Just comics or just in general? No, in comics. Not as significant as Harvey was. Because this is a truly family-owned and run business, right. not just like a figurehead and then some other hanger-ons. It's a real family business. That being said, I mean, the early days of Timely and Marvel, Archie, these guys were just hiring relatives. Martin Goodman especially right. was really only hiring cousins and brothers right. and things yeah. like that. And, and it was like that for like 20, 30 years. Chip Goodman was supposed to have 
taken over Marvel, but Stan Lee was kind of the not blood relation person that maneuvered and took that away from Chip. But I think probably it was well-deserved because Stan Lee did create the Marvel brand with those other guys like Kirby and Ditko. But it was a family thing before Stan Lee and Perfect Film and Chemical kind of took over it. Atlas. Atlas might in the 70s may be the, the closest thing to it when you think about Lieber and Chip and Martin. Right. And that's basically just a continuation of the timely people, just kind of more modern and trying to fight back against Marvel and Perfect Film and Chemical and Stan Lee and then failing, right? That's what happened there. But Harvey's it. From beginning to end, yeah. yeah. That's a narrative hook. I mean, this could be a miniseries as much as it could be a documentary. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I mean, it's 80 years of history. You know what you should do, Johnny? Get the guys that made that Saddam miniseries, (laughs) Saddam Hussein miniseries, have them do the Harvey family. That'd be awesome. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right, you'll produce that one. How about that? There you go. (laughs) I'm getting those guys on the phone for you, man. Yeah, please, please. (laughs) I'm sure my family would love that. Yeah. Um. (laughs) You've seen their work before. They did the Saddam family. Yeah. Jim's right, though. That is a great idea for a miniseries. I mean, I would watch it easily. Are you talking about narrative? Or are you talking about like a, a documentary miniseries? No, 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 yeah, no, yeah, no narrative. like narrative. Yeah, Have Ghost point. Empire become the success that it should and will be. And then <laughs> that gets the uh, attention of the narrative people and then make a miniseries on Netflix or something. Ghost Empire is the first step. I mean, you got to get that done. All right, Alex, you're my agent. You got the All job. Right. Yeah, that, that'd be my dream. There's, of course, like Mad Men. A similar thing of people just throwing darts at a board and seeing like what hits in advertising and that world that was the 50s in publishing and TV advertising. Everyone in comic books was a character. You know, I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Danny Fingeroth just did Stan Lee's book. And I was at, I guess both of you were there at his book signing and in a, one of his events in LA. And somebody in the crowd asked, was Stan Lee, you know, like he was, how he portrayed himself in the media? Like, was he this comic book character, like larger than life? And Danny was like, I mean, he was who he was. These people didn't fake anything, you know? I mean, they were compelling characters in their own right. And they made these characters that I think influenced a lot of people in the world. And of course, you've seen what Marvel, we've all seen what Marvel's done, their characters. And we've seen what DC has had success with. And they've been able to make these characters of any generation. They've allowed every generation to experience these characters the last 80 years in a different way. Jim experienced these characters, you know, as a kid in a way that you didn't. But then, of course, your brother experienced Casper in a way that... He got it CGI. Me, I just got the cartoons in the 80s, (laughs) along with uh, Smurfs and whatever else was on. There's something to that. Yeah, I'm surprised, honestly, that there hasn't been already something that's been made from a narrative perspective about comic books. Outside of Harvey Kurtzman, is that right? Oh, yeah. That yeah, was like, absolutely that was, was great, but it was kind of a I'm, I'm blanking on the name of it, American Splendor, but it was a quasi doc because they had the real people in it. It was about the Harvey Picar. Yeah, Harvey Picar. Oh, Har- is that who you so, meant to say? Yeah, that's, that's, what, he, that's what he. Harvey Picar. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like Harvey Kurtzman. Wait sorry, a minute. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. My spider <laughs> sense. You kind of violated yeah, it for a second, but it's yeah, fine. It's, I, I need that every now and then. And you know, Cavalier and Clay is getting the full treatment. I think that's going to be the the beginning of these comic narratives. So you got to get Ghost Empire going, then ride on the success of Cavalier and Clay. Say, this will be the next Cavalier and Clay. Check out Ghost Empire. Look, I'll, that's fine. I'll make the calls for you. Don't worry, Johnny. It'll be Great. fine. All right, good. It'll I'm be fine. Happen. It'll be just <laughs> fine. Johnny, if you can tell us, because I wanted to ask you about the people you've interviewed besides what? me. Out of the people that actually worked at Harvey, did you get to talk to Ernie Colin before he died? 
I did, but we didn't get to film him. I interviewed oh, no. him. I interviewed him, but unfortunately, he got sick when we had planned to interview him on camera. Oh, bummer. Yeah, it was pretty upsetting. And I mean, and that's kind of why I wanted to do this as quickly as possible. That's what you got to do. Because I just didn't want a situation like that happening. And there was another person that unfortunately died before we were able to film him. And yeah. that's definitely the, the, been the, the most disappointing. This stuff is going away. It's evaporating. You got to yeah, capture it in a bottle. It's pretty intense. I'm not going to lie. We've interviewed Sid Jacobson, a man named Stan Harfinist, who was there in the 50s. He was Alfred's kind of understudy, who essentially was doing the advertising for the company and kind of has the insight of how the business operation was happening. We've interviewed a lot of the artists and people working there in the 70s. Angelo DeCessory, who also worked for Harvey in the 90s. Paul Marangeli, who's a pretty vocal person on the Harvey social media. A woman named Jean Novitz, she worked for the business as well. A lot of different perspectives from people in the business. I've talked to three different family members on camera, specifically. A lot of different historians. We filmed 28 people on camera, to be clear. A handful of historians to give different context to a lot of different things. Like, Of course, we've interviewed Danny Fingeroth and Mark Evanier. They give a really amazing insight about the early years of Harvey and Joe Simon's involvement mm. and how that was working out. We've interviewed people like Karen Green of Columbia and Heidi McDonald to kind of give more like a holistic from just a historical comic book perspective, what these comic books meant to people, and especially to women, which I was not aware of at all, that they were really the only group that was making comics for young girls that weren't about sexual relationships, like the Archie comics were. And Nightmare is a tremendous character for girls as well. Don't underestimate that. It's sort of a comic horse authority. I I just want to say that. (laughs) Yeah. You are on the nightmare island, if you will. Like you're selling real estate and you've been buying for years. You are. That's right. Jim owns Horse Island. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And I know he's got a great five story building that's got nightmare at the, at the penthouse or something like that. I know that you are the, the aficionado. Howard Post. Yeah. Yeah. That's a key character. We've interviewed the people that took over Harvey in the 90s. We interviewed the man that bought the company from my family who kind of disappeared and was kind of a big deal finding him. He told his tell-all, if you will, which is really amazing and has never been told before. I cannot stress how amazing his story is. I mean, it's really unbelievable. We talked to his 2A at the company, his his VP, his executive VP at the company, Gary Blumberg, who had a very successful career at Disney afterwards. We interviewed the people actually who were the showrunners and producers on the show, the new Harvey Girls Forever show at DreamWorks to kind of get the perspective of where is Harvey now and what has, mm. what's been going on and how have they tried to reinvent the characters in their own way to kind of attract a new audience of kids and whether or not that has been successful or not. We've interviewed a lot of different people to give a really, really holistic view of what happened in the family, what was happening at the company, what was happening in the industry at the time. We interviewed a psychologist. Well, we interviewed Steve Jeppe of course, gave us. Oh, you did? That's cool. Oh, yeah. We got the Jeffy take on everything. It's a little like Mr. Rogers to an extent of characters were kid characters, characters geared for young kids to be able to learn lessons in a productive way. And it's an interesting in hindsight to really like think about what content kids are, are having now and what is appropriate content for kids to have or to be consuming on a regular basis. So we really attempted to get a very holistic view of Harvey as the company, the industry perspective, the family perspective, what happened after the business was sold and what's happening with Harvey now. That's an exciting project. We're all excited about it. Is it getting closer to, because I interviewed with you, it was a good year and a half or so ago, wasn't it? You got a new producer on it. Is it being recut? Are you still filming? What's the status on it now? We're in post-production. We're definitely 
still in the process of seeing just the shape of the film to an extent. You know, is this a movie? Is this a limited series? Where is the home going to be? You know, we're at a stage where we've really put together our story. We're going to be looking for, you know, investments still for finishing funds to really make this thing as like amazing as, as you've kind of heard, you know, me mm-hmm. tell, you know, we really want it to be visually amazing, musically thrilling and to be on the right home. So we're trying to just now bring Patrick Median, who's been able to package docs in all these different ways. Project's in really great hands because he has a really good pulse on where this might be and what form it should take. And it's been really amazing to just get somebody in, not only who's been doing docs for 10 years, but specifically comic book docs for 10 years. Like mm-hmm. right now, it's, it's great just to bring in this guy in, taking a couple steps back and just dreaming, like, what could this be? And then trying to achieve that. And I think that we're on the right path. I will say, it's not going to be coming out next month. It's not going to be coming out in a few right, months. Right. I mean, this, this thing is a, a living, right. breathing entity. We got to do it right. I'm thrilled to be working with people that are just guns blazing, want this thing to be one of the greater documentaries, really, you know, of course, comic book docs. But from an American history perspective, we really think that this is going to invite a lot of other people that maybe experienced Casper from their childhood or just are kind of fascinated by general American history family stories. So yeah, so we're hoping it's going to kind of invite a lot of other people besides the comic book community. Is your family unified on this? Or is there anybody that's thinking that one uncle is or granduncle isn't getting enough attention or that the story is being told slanted toward anybody, that one person's a bad guy? Is everybody in your family behind you doing this or is there any kind of disputes? I'm not going to speak for my relatives, but I would say generally everyone's been very supportive and thinks that this is a really important story that should be told. And I think that there's a lot of emotions when it comes to who said what, and it can mm-hmm. become a he said, she said thing as a lot of comic book stories have become. There's some relatives I met for the very first time that went on camera and poured their heart out and talked about business and their father and people involved in this company with just incredible emotion. Have been so supportive. You know, we're able to kind of give their take on the situation in their perspective. And I think they were honest and raw and real and they didn't have an agenda. You know, I mean, I had to get my grandmother's blessing on this. I talked to her once. She was a little skeptical of what I was doing. I mean, my grandmother's the kind of woman that was like, Johnny, you got a marketing degree. Why don't you go get a marketing job? What are you doing this thing for? And I had to explain to her that, you know, I felt like this was a really great way for me to get into documentaries and for me to tell a story that I think is really important and became a self-discovery thing for me. I said, I said, if you're not comfortable with this, I'll stop. She gave me her blessing. But I think that the family is done with conflict. They want to move on with their lives. And maybe this will help a lot of people move on from that time in their life. Maybe. Well, this has been great, Johnny. Thanks so much for joining Jim and I today. We really enjoyed having you with us to describe and to almost deconstruct and then reconstruct the history of Harvey Comics and the Harvey family. Thank you so much for being with us today at the Comic Book Historians Podcast. Thank you, guys. This was a great conversation. Hopefully, I can come on again when the doc's about to be released. Absolutely. Absolutely. 